0: from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No, (laughs) The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he showed by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thought I would read a verse as we begin with prayer. Although we just heard some verses Isaiah 64.4 says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So would you come and join me this morning as we wait on the Lord before we look at his word? God, we thank you for that promise, that you work for those who wait for you. Lord, we pray that you would cause your word this morning to gain entry, that you would show forth the glory of your son Jesus in his peaceful, tender restoration of this ruined and broken sinner. Lord, that you would do that by your spirit in this room, that for each of us, you would call out the darkness which we may allow to hide under the surface, and that you would give to us true life. We pray that you would call us back to our first loves as your son restored Peter by centralizing everything that he was around that question, do you love me? Lord, help us to answer that question this morning. We ask this for Christ's name and his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, happy Easter. Christ is risen. As you can see from the pyramids, we are still white this morning, and um, we, we celebrate the season of Easter for a reason, just like we celebrate other seasons for reasons, and the reason is Christ's resurrection is magnificent, and it is many-faceted in its, in its application to the Christian life. So we, we take this time to look at the different gospel portions and the epistle portions explaining what the resurrection means. Last week, we saw how Jesus entered into the midst of the disciples' fear and proclaimed peace to them. This is an extremely important idea for us because the disciples had heard externally of the fact of His resurrection, but they were not transformed by just hearing the facts of the resurrection. This is a central problem for us as Christians and people who are living in God's people, living among God's people and in God's community. Even though we may hear externally the fact of His resurrection, we do not know all of its implications. There are things that have to get fleshed out from the fact that He was raised from the dead, into our lives. What, what, what does his resurrection actually mean? The disciples are cowering in fear, as we saw last week, because they were not delivered from their fears just because they heard that Christ was delivered up out of the grave. The resurrection that took place in Jesus was not yet worked through the disciples' life. Instead of waiting for them to discover all the implications of the resurrection, Jesus, last week we saw, comes to them and proclaims His peace to them directly. He not only proclaims His peace, He commissions them with a purpose. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then finally, He anoints them with the Spirit's power. That is, He tells them, there's a promise that you are to receive. There's a promise that's coming, and you must receive it. Again, therefore, Jesus knows in this reading, in this week, Jesus again knows that His disciples have deep needs, deep needs, and He comes to their aid to come to restore them. He does not wait for the disciples to find Him. He goes to them. As the disciples seem, in this passage, to return to their former calling, Jesus reveals Himself once again as the Lord over all. We had seen this in our time in Epiphany this year, that at another time, Christ did a very similar miracle at a very different time in his ministry, and he, he caused Peter to recognize that he is the Lord over all of creation. But now in this passage, he reminds them of that fact, but he does it with a unique application. They can never return to that which they used to love and cherish, that which they used to do. And knowing Peter's denial, Jesus returns in this passage like a masterful surgeon, cutting out what is dead and binding up the wound of Peter's soul. I want you, as we look at this passage, to imagine being Peter. Knowing what you know about the Christ and who he was to be the king, to sit on the throne of his father David, and to be the one to restore the kingdom to Israel, the one who was the perfect law keeper and to not understand that the Messiah was to be given up to death, and in the fear of you being caught up in his judgment, the judgment that was coming against him, you let him go. You ran away. It's kind of like a person who sees someone in a burning building and doesn't call the fire department or, or doesn't rush in to save. It would be that sort of weight on one's soul. Jesus knows Peter's needs, and he comes to Peter. And he doesn't just come to Peter and kind of say peace externally. He did say peace to him, and we saw that last week. But Jesus recognizes, no, he he must put his finger on what still remains in Peter's soul of shame and sin and guilt. And Jesus is not willing to let Peter live without being healed. We today are often like these disciples in this passage. When Jesus seems to be delayed in coming to us, or we simply lack direction in what to do next, we often default back to what we used to do before the Lord. How many times have we made major life decisions without even considering prayer or considering how we ought to live in the light of Christ's resurrection? These disciples, as I'm going to read this text in this way, these disciples default back to what they used to do. They are aimless. They don't know what they should be doing. Like Peter, we too have denied the Lord either publicly, there are times where Christians deny the Lord publicly, where they fail to speak up for Christ's name or fail to identify themselves as Christians when asked, or we have all done this, the simple functional denial that comes through preferring sin over preferring Christ. It's a form of denial, brothers and sisters, and your conscience knows that. When you choose secret sin, you are putting the cross of Christ at a distance in your heart and in your experience. But just as Jesus came to Peter, the Lord Jesus is coming to each of us, and He is willing to place His finger on our sins, and He calls us to follow Him. Therefore, with that in mind, I want to look at four aspects of today's reading and apply it to what it means to be Christians in the light of a resurrected Christ who is able to, willing to, and certainly tender enough and compassionate enough to restore us. First, I want to examine the miracle of the fish, the details of it and the things that Christ says through it. I want to look at how Jesus is recognized, not just in the miracle, but also in the meal as none of the disciples needed to ask him who he was. Then I want to look at Jesus' restoration of Peter, how he thrice questions Peter, hearkening back to the three denials that Peter had done just three days or uh, about, a, about a week and three days ago. And then finally, what it means for us as Christians to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. John opens this final chapter of his gospel highlighting in the first verse how Jesus revealed himself again. In verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. It's important to note as we begin that John is describing not only that Jesus revealed himself, but how he revealed himself. John is not primarily just describing that Jesus revealed the fact of his resurrection by his bodily presence, but that this entire scene of what we read in the next few verses is the way by which Jesus revealed himself. Jesus did not just demonstrate himself as a physical body. It's not just answering the Gnostics who would come in a few centuries, asserting that he is really a human being in a resurrected frame. Jesus was not just telling them, yes, I did in fact fulfill to a literal definition the promises of my resurrection from the Old Testament. We read this morning in our call to worship Psalm 16 that the Lord is making known to his Messiah the paths of life and he will not abandon him to Sheol. He will not leave him in the place of the dead, as Peter quotes in Acts 2, applying it to Christ. Jesus here is not just revealing that he is resurrected, but he's revealing himself, the fullness of who he is, not just as the resurrected Messiah, the one who has defeated death, but the one who extends forgiveness to his people and proclaims to them peace and places his finger upon and removes deadness and puts in Flesh puts in a new heart that can fully live. Jesus, in this entire event, is demonstrating himself as Lord over creation, the one who defeated death, and the one who is able to forgive his people and to restore them to a glorious purpose. Jesus knows his disciples' needs, and therefore, as I asserted during our time of Epiphany, that he caused the disciples who fished all night to not get any fish. If you were with us during that, during that uh, time of epiphany, you might remember from the sermon that I asserted that Jesus was proactively all night long causing the fish to not come into their nets. And we said at that time that it would be a horrible omen as a fisherman to go to the place like the Sea of Tiberias where it was common for them to get a great catch of fish to not catch any fish would be a terrifying prospect. In fact, it might be the case, and again, the text doesn't help us here, but I would guess that some of the disciples thought to themselves, boy, this is weird. Something, for lack of a better word, fishy, is going on. <laughs> they, would, they would have been perplexed, and they might have said to themselves, this is strange. Why... How many times have we been out and caught not a fish? It's important to keep in mind that number that they catch. It'll come up in a minute. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Can- Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and, the other, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat But that night they caught nothing. The disciples, as I read this text, and many commentators go here, the disciples seem to be aimlessly returning to their vocation that they had before following Christ. Here's why I'm saying seem to, because at this point, this reading is tentative. We are allowed to, as Christians, as as an aside, we are allowed to have tentative readings, trying to be faithful to the text. We must allow the text to say what it does say, but we must also hear all that the text is saying. And taking this account in the context of the entire Gospels and the context of the disciples' frustration in Luke 24, we had hoped He was the Messiah, they seem to be reverting back to what they used to do before they knew the Lord Jesus, Remember, the Gospels called them, Jesus in the Gospels rather, called them out of their former trade and into newness of life. In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus had called the disciples to abandon their father's trade. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you see where I'm going with this context? If you remember Matthew 28, he's going to tell them, go into all the nations, be the fishers of men I called you to be. So I read this passage, an entire account is Jesus is not abandoning his calling to them. He's not going to allow them to find success in what they used to do before they put their hands to the plow. Remember what Jesus said anyone who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is, is unfit, or un, it's unbefitting that they be my disciple. Jesus is going to cause them to proclaim his word to the nations and to gather men into his kingdom. He is going to cause them to actually catch fish of men, not fish in a sea. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Let me just say that this is, even though I'm saying that this is a tentative reading, I would not put it in front of you unless I was confident that this is the right reading, and here's why. So many other Christians of the first few centuries have interpreted this hyper-allegorical. You may say that, John, boy, this is, this is not sounding like a very sure reading from John's gospel perspective, but actually this is quite a safe reading compared to what a lot of people in the church fathers did with this passage. They said, well, the reason Jesus is on the shore is that he has now passed through the waters of death and is now safe on the shore, and the disciples still have a journey to... Do you see, that is hyper-allegorical reading. What I'm doing is not allegorical reading in danger. It's reading in the context of the entire Gospels. The reason I explain that to you is when you read your Bibles, you will have questions like this, and you need to develop your instincts on how to read. Read with the character of the full Gospels in mind. Read with the character of what Christ is calling his people to do. Verse 4, "...just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus." Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. John highlights that though Jesus was physically seen, they did not recognize him apart from the miracle and the meal. In the prior verse, it says that the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Even though he speaks to them, they don't recognize him. Jesus is doing a miracle And before he does that miracle, he draws attention to their lack in order to create an awareness of their need. Jesus was not being mean, brothers and sisters, when he asked these disciples, do you have any fish? Remember, if he caused there to not be any fish in those nets that night, he knew they didn't have any fish. And if he knew they didn't have any fish, why did he ask? I believe he asked so that they would be awakened to his power and authority, that they would recognize the Lord has all power. This resurrected Christ is not just a human who's come back from the dead like the prophets of old. He is God in the flesh, and he will not be stopped in his purposes. He will cause us to be his disciples, his apostles who go out into the nations. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Do you see what happens to John? John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He goes on to write, When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, John says that he recognized Jesus in the miracle, that in the doing of the miracle, this one who was on the shore, who they heard call to him, but did not recognize He was now revealed because his power was displayed. And not only was his power displayed, his nature, his character was displayed. Peter likewise recognized Christ's power, and therefore he gives up the catch and throws himself into the sea. I love how our translation translates this passage. He didn't jump into the sea. He's not entering a pool. He throws himself with reckless abandon to get to Christ. As the Puritans say, "flying to Christ." That, that doesn't mean we flap our wings. it means we give ourselves that it, there's a journey of the soul in which we come to Christ with absolute abandon, that we come to Christ and recognize him as not only the Lord overall, but the one whom with which we want to be. Peter is giving up himself to get to Christ. He doesn't care about the fish anymore. After this miraculous catch, the disciples then arrive to land to see Jesus welcoming them to eat with him. Remember the composite picture of what we've seen, the resurrected Christ. He tells the women to go tell my brothers. In John's gospel, it says, go tell my brothers, and Mary goes and tells the disciples. We saw that a few years ago in our Easter sermon in 2014. And this idea that the resurrected Christ is calling them to be children of God That is, He gives Mary to John and John to Mary. He's saying something prophetic about who the disciples are to be as God's children. And then last week, we saw how Jesus enters into a room filled with fear and proclaims peace to them. In the other Gospels, Jesus comes and He eats a meal, and that's what takes place also in John's Gospel. Jesus comes and He welcomes them to a meal. He doesn't just do a sign of power, He also lives with them. He gives of Himself to be with His disciples. I forget the reference, but in the Gospels, when it describes the appointing of the twelve, I think it might be Mark's Gospel, that He appointed them to be with Him. What a wonderful passage. It, they're not just going to do signs and wonders. They're not just going to have these contests of who's the greatest and which, God, which apostle will make it to the most people and who will preach in front of the greatest number of politicians or or city councils. No, Jesus appointed His disciples that they would be with Him. That first and foremost, He wants the disciples to love Him and then feed His lambs. Verse 9, When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. As a quick aside, last week I mentioned one of the keys to John's gospel is that he mentions things in pairs. And there's only one other place that a charcoal fire is mentioned in the New Testament, and it is the charcoal fire around which Peter was warming himself before he denied the Lord Jesus. That is an important key to understand the setting. That's If you were watching a movie, this would be the wonderfully tender music of a restorative scene that's about to play, that it might transition from an ominous minor key, and then it would resolve into a peaceful setting of welcoming and invitation. Jesus made a charcoal fire, and John wrote it down so that we would not miss the detail. Why else would John wrote charcoal fire? Why wouldn't he you just said there was a fire? No, he, he used the word charcoal fire just as he had done a few verses prior. Verse 11, so Simon Peter went ab- aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Just as Jesus had asked if they had fish, now he tells them to bring those fish. He knows that they were fruitful in his task. He gave them a task, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and then they catch fish a great catch of fish. Throughout the centuries of the church, God's people have always debated the significance of the meaning of 153. In the second century, Origen, one of the early church uh, commentators, I wouldn't call him a church father, he wasn't exactly orthodox in many ways, Origen thought it referred to a work around the time of Christ which named the number 153 as the complete and exhaustive number of species of fish. And Origen interpreted this detail and John's use of this detail as saying that Jesus is able to take fish from all the nations. Augustine thought it was a significance as a triangular number. Now we're going to do a little math here. Don't be afraid. He thought it was the sum of the first 17 numbers relating to the Ten Commandments and the Seven Gifts of the Spirit. Now again, Brother Augustine excels us in many things, and many of us will never achieve his height in the things of theology. Nevertheless, I don't particularly think that that was John's intention. James Jordan, a modern commentator, has connected this number to the number of the Gentile nations. And we don't have time to go into all of the reasoning. Certainly, the number is special. But perhaps the significance of this number primarily relies in its particular relation to two other numbers. That is, all other numbers and a special number, zero. I think what John is saying, and I might be off on this, but I think what John is saying is they didn't catch 152 fish and they didn't catch 154 fish. Before Jesus commanded them to cast again on the other side, what was the number of fish that they caught? Zero. That apart from me, you can do nothing was fulfilled in this moment, and that John, as he writes this gospel, is saying something by recording this specific number. One of 53 is not just a significant number for all of its mathematical properties, It's a significant number because it's explicit. It's what we call in the math world an integer. There weren't 152 and a half fish. There weren't some caught in the net and not caught in the net. Brothers and sisters, there were 153 fish, not a single fish less or a single fish more. Christ knows those who are his. My sheep know my voice. All that the Father has given to me, I will lose none of them. Just as Jesus can open up the nets at any time as he should choose, so also he can cause the specific number that he wants to come into those nets. If he should desire that many would be caught, the nets nevertheless will not be torn. Jesus then welcomes them to this meal to fellowship with him, and in the meal he is recognized. In verse 12 it says, "'Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.'" Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Having revealed himself three times, Jesus has shown his willingness to meet his disciples' needs and to receive them to himself. Our Lord not only knows what we need in order to believe, Just like he came to meet with Thomas as we saw last week, giving Thomas the same evidence as the other disciples, he also knows what we need in order to understand who he is. Here we see the resurrected Christ coming to simply be with the disciples, to spend time with the disciples, to fellowship with them, to commune with them around a meal, not just to do a sign of power, but also to expend himself in loving them and being present to them. The resurrected Christ, therefore, is displayed or reveals himself, rather, as one who loves them and cares for them personally, to be present and near to them so that he can address their specific needs. Knowing Peter's failure and his denial, Jesus addresses Peter directly, calling attention to his need for restoration. Jesus is unwilling to let Peter's sin remain, and he's unwilling to not to let Peter stay unreconciled and unrestored. In verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asks Peter if his love for him was greater than the disciples' love. That's what he means when he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's responding to a specific thing that Peter had done. In Matthew 26, 33 through 35, Jesus has an interaction with Peter. Peter answered him in verse 33, "'Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away.'" Jesus said to him, "'Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times.'" Peter said to him even if I must die with you I will not deny you and all the disciples said the same Jesus is restoring Peter by calling him to do what Jesus himself would be doing in the place these lambs as Jesus said are my lambs they're Jesus's lambs and Jesus as the good shepherd if he were to remain would feed those lambs personally directly And yet he gives Peter a command, feed my lambs, Peter. By telling him, feed my lambs, Jesus is restoring Peter to the task of declaring God's word to God's people. Remember, he had called them to become fishers of men. And the metaphor changes from fish to lambs, and instead of catching fish, now he's feeding lambs. But guess what, brothers and sisters? That's the process of sharing God's word. We catch fish who turn into lambs who must be fed. And the same instrument for the catching and the feeding is God's word. Jesus is restoring Peter by saying, you should do what I called you to do. You haven't been disqualified by the denials. Nevertheless, Jesus is wanting to make that point. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord Jesus knew Peter's denial and prophesied it before it took place, as we read in Matthew's gospel, do you think that Jesus knew what he was doing by asking three times, do you love me? He absolutely knew what he was doing. The Lord Jesus did not just know that Peter would deny him, but prophesied that he would do it. He, he warned Peter, and then he gave Peter a command, after you have fallen and been restored, restore your brothers. And Jesus recognized that Peter has not been restored, and he comes to Peter, and he opens up the wound. In the experience of medicine, there is a very serious danger in a surgery. I recently had a surgery on my eyes, and it was the most terrifying experience medically that I've ever taken place in, and I hope to never have another surgery, Lord willing. But there's an amazing danger. They warned you when you go to get this surgery on your eye, you're not allowed to wear anything that's puffy or fleecy or has feathers on it because they're concerned with an extreme danger. In fact, in the room that I entered in, they had these special air filters because they were concerned that a little piece of dust would land on your eye and that they would close it up and seal it. And that little piece of dust would... Be in your eye and it would cause an infection, and they would have to open up the eye to get it out. Now, of course, I didn't wear anything puffy or fleecy or feathery. The point that they gave in that warning is if there gets to be something under the skin that isn't treated, it has to be treated. That's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. He's doing this to Peter because he knows what's beneath the surface in Peter's soul. He knows that just as Peter has fallen three times, he needs to be restored three times. And that's why Jesus says it three times. He asks Peter, are you sure that you love me? Are you confident that you love me? Remember what Peter had done. He had so confidently boasted in his flesh prior to this. He had said, Lord, even if all leave you, I will never leave you. And yet, he did leave him. He denied him. There had been a death of the exposure of Peter's flesh. It had been like gangrene in the experience of a medical patient, that that wound had to be opened up, and Jesus, as the master surgeon, had to come and remove all that is dead out of Peter's life. Jesus not only exposes the death of Peter's flesh, but he comes and restores and works his resurrection power into a new work in Peter's life. Jesus then promises to be with Peter, even in his worst trial. What was Peter's boast? Even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And brothers and sisters, in the mixture of everything that Peter experienced in his weakness of his flesh and his boasting and his pride, there was a kernel of truth there. Peter did love the Lord, and yet his love, though it was real, it was weak. He did love the Lord, and he wanted to be faithful to the Lord, but Jesus recognized, Peter, in your own strength, you will not refrain from denying me but you will be restored. I find great comfort in the next few verses. Peter had boasted of dying for the Lord, and now Jesus promises that he indeed will deny, or will rather die for the Lord, but this time he will not deny him. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry, where, carry you where you, you do not want to go. You know what that means? That means you're going you're gonna to put out your hands and they're going to be bound. Jesus prophesies to Peter right now. He says, you boasted that you would die for me, and yet you could not maintain your own soul. You could not cause yourself to not deny me. And yet, truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you did whatever you wanted, but there's a day coming, Peter, where you're gonna have to put out your hands and it'll happen. Jesus is saying to Peter, I believe he's saying to Peter, Peter, you won't deny me when the time comes right. When it matters, you will bear witness. You will be my faithful martyr and witness. That's why John, our gospel writer, our narrator, says in the next verse, 19, This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. What a wonderfully comforting verse, because this shows the whole scope of Peter's life, that Peter had a pride of the flesh, and yet it was full of mixture, and and he was unable to sustain his own soul for the Lord, and yet he did love the Lord, and he wanted to glorify Christ. Remember when when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered correctly, not factually. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood, human beings, didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Peter had a, a, a level of reality with Christ, and yet he was still living in his own power and for his own glory, all the while wanting to, desiring to, having a love for the Lord that would desire to grow. And Jesus therefore says, when you get old, you're going to put out your hands and you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. You will glorify God in your death. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Whether in life or in death, Jesus is calling Peter to glorify God by following him. And this is the exact same calling to each of us, to look to Jesus Christ for how to live. How amazingly compassionate is the Lord Jesus Christ in forgiving Peter. Jesus does not sweep Peter's failures and sin under a rug. He is willing to address the sin in Peter's life in order to bring healing. Again, going back to our metaphor, he's willing to open up the wound to remove that which should not be. Jesus knows that if left untreated, Peter's sin will absolutely spiral out of control. Peter's pride had begat his betrayal, and his, bega- and his betrayal had begat shame, and his shame had seemingly begat despair. I'm going fishing. I'm going to go do what we used to do. But Jesus calls him back. Pastors, those who are called to tend God's pasture... That's where what a pastor means, is one who's given charge over God's pasture, his flock of sheep. We must follow the good shepherd in this way. In the modern era, many pastors are terrified to name sin or to privately rebuke. But through the prophet Jeremiah, God actually rebuked the false shepherds of Israel who neglected rebuking Israel's sins. In Jeremiah 6, 14, Jeremiah, recording the words of Yahweh, had this to say against the false shepherds who would not name Israel's sins. He said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. In the context of what we heard last week with Jesus entering into the center of the disciples, Jesus says, peace, peace to them, doesn't he? But he doesn't heal the wound lightly. He heals it fully, perfectly, We must not, therefore, as Paul warned the Ephesian elders, we must not shrink back from declaring anything that is profitable, but must rather day and night admonish everyone with tears. This is the calling to be among God's people as God's ministers. We must not shrink back. We must tend and care for the flock that Christ purchased with His own blood we must love our people. Rather, we must love God's people enough to guard them from self-destruction through the deceit of hidden sin. We are like Peter in many ways, aren't we? And as those who are pastors among God's flock, who have charge over people who are hiding sin, we must imitate the good shepherd in this. If you're discipling someone, if you're in pastoral council with someone, and someone is coming to you, and you know their secret unconfessed sin in their life that is tormenting them, you cannot refuse to address it. You must address it. We must love God's people enough, our brothers and sisters enough, that when we see them dying of gangrene, we are willing to have the hard conversations. We must forgive like Christ forgave. Christ gave unqualified forgiveness to the disciples. Remember, He arrived in the room and He declared to them peace. He didn't offer them peace. He announced it. He said, this is what I've accomplished in my cross. Peace to you. You've been brought near by my blood that I have completed my work that I did on the cross, and I have now brought God's church, His collection of the redeemed, to the Father. That Jesus is announcing to them peace and proclaiming to them peace, not merely offering it. This is why debates about the free offer of the gospel are, are so confusing to me, because it's not really an offer. It is an offer in that we must individually respond to God's invitation to be reconciled. But much more is it an announcement that it is just a simple offer. It's rather the announcement of, "Look at what God has done through Christ." How could you do anything but run to him? That's what the presentation of the gospel is, both to the sinner and the saint alike, both to those outside of the church and inside the church. We must absolutely forgive as Christ forgave, and we must bring that forgiveness into conflict with hidden sin. That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing the reality of his forgiveness to Peter into the conflict of Peter's shame and secret despair over his sin. That's why he says, that's why John tells us he was grieved when he said it three when Christ had asked him the third time. He was grieved because it was still grievous to him. How many of us therefore are like Peter? Just like Peter, our fleshly boasts of zeal for God always crash upon the rocks of reality. If you have ever walked with Christ for more than a few days, perhaps more than a few hours, you have already begun to see that your greatest resolve to start a new Bible reading program or to witness more or to pray more or to cease that particular sin, it always fails if it's based upon your zeal. If it's based upon fleshly zeal, you will crash upon the rocks of reality. Our enemy knows that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18 is a verse that the enemy plainly knows. It's interesting to me in my experience, anecdotally, that I receive a lot of compliments when I'm not doing well. (laughs) Now, you don't have to stop complimenting me. And I'm not confessing that I'm not doing well. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, isn't it just like our enemy to know how to make us fall? We must, therefore, humble ourselves through prayer. We must recognize that we imitate Christ by taking on the faith of Christ, how he went to the cross, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, we too must do all things. We must be like Peter in this regard, that when Jesus puts his finger on something, we don't wriggle ourselves out of the thumbscrews. We don't, we don't run away and avoid and, and try to escape and evade. We let Christ address us. We must seek help from fellow believers and pastoral counsel especially. How many Christians walk with crippling guilt that they, what they've done is too evil for Christ to redeem? Many of us recognize Christ's forgiveness for sin in general. Many of us recognize, yes, I was a sinner in an abstract sort of way, but we don't really see Christ's forgiveness as applying to those spe- spectacular sins those specifically heinous sins which we have committed. Perhaps there's some sort of sin in our past which we can kind of psychologically or subconsciously accept. Christ in general has made atonement over my sins, but this particular thing never will cease to haunt me to the end of my days. Perhaps, rather, we think that we can accept Christ's forgiveness sins for the sins that were committed long ago, but we are constantly condemned over those which we have not yet gained victory over. We either, like Peter, are grieved by something that was done that was especially heinous, the betrayal of the Messiah unto his death, or we are like, like Christians who've walked with the Lord for a little bit of time and have gained ground in sanctification. We think that Christ has made atonement of our sins before Christ, but we are not so sure whether his atonement applies to the sins we've done today. We must remember that Peter's greatest fall was at the end of Christ's public ministry. If you think to yourself, at this point in my walk, I should be over this, You must remember that Peter denied Christ at the end of Christ working with him, not at the beginning of Christ working with him. How many Christians walk with secret and hidden sin? Brothers and sisters, I want to share this with you tenderly and patiently. And with the most grace I can muster, I need to tell you this. Christ is in our presence right now. He walks in Revelation. It says, he walks among the churches. I want you to think about this. The Lord Jesus has been present all morning. He is always present when two or three are gathered. He is enthroned in glory, to be sure. He is not somehow in this church and yet not in, on His throne. He is in this church spiritually. He is present by His Holy Spirit. And the one who died and was pierced and was raised to life and is now enthroned in glory and has poured forth his spirit, he is installed, he is seated at the Father's right hand. And he knows the worst things that you have ever done. That is the Lord Jesus Christ presented in the New Testament. And yet he would not only proclaim peace to you, but he would restore you to himself. Do not be afraid to let Christ place his finger upon your secret sin. As Christ's people, we have to be reminded that his forgiveness is perfect. Jesus knows the worst things you have ever thought, the worst things you have ever done. And he says to you, because of my blood and what I've done on the cross, peace. There's no more war between you and I. There's no more enmity between your sins and God. Peace, brothers. Peace, sisters. As Christ's people, we not only need to be reminded that His forgiveness is perfect, that it completely absolves from sin, but also that His forgiveness is perfecting. It's not just perfect forgiveness, complete, total, without any hint of, of retaining some sort of guilt, But also we need to be reminded routinely that Christ's forgiveness is perfecting forgiveness. It causes us to become lovely. Christ is not only going to forgive us of all of our sins, but is going to transform us. That's why he gives Peter the charge. Feed my lambs, Peter. Don't not feed my lambs. They're hungry. You're ready. I'm going to make you ready. Christ's love is not due to the loveliness of the sinner, but rather makes the sinner into a lovely saint. His love is not set on the object of his love. His love is set on the destiny. That is to say, Christ's love for you is because of his sovereign choice and because of what he is transforming you into, a pure and spotless bride. Isn't that wonderful that our Lord, as the Lamb of God, was the pure and spotless Lamb, and at the end of Revelation, we see the bride coming down from heaven as a pure and spotless, a bride who has no blemish. What a beautiful picture. Therefore, my charge to you this morning is, as Christ is raised in power, let us receive His restoration from our sins and follow Him with upright lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that what he did with Peter that day on the shore, he would do with us, that he would tell us, that he would call us to feed your people, and that he would call us individually to follow him, and that we would, by your spirit, by your grace alone, that we would follow you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.